Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Beloved, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength, our Redeemer. Would you come, Holy Spirit, breath of God, spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, and of knowledge. In these next few minutes, may only truth be spoken. May only truth be received. Amen. Well, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, we are now entering into the season of Epiphany. Uh, The Feast of the Epiphany was yesterday, and so this Sunday is the first Sunday in the season of Epiphany. And Epiphany uh, means revelation. It's a theophany. It's not just a revelation about anything we want it to be. It is a revelation in particular about who God is revealed to be in the person and the work and the life and the action in the very presence of Christ our Lord. And so over these coming weeks, at the heart of the Epiphany season, every single year is uh, what I think I would argue is one single invitation. It is an invitation to this, to contemplate to turn our attention, which is what contemplating means. It's good from time to time to ask what is it that we are contemplating. But to contemplate, to turn our attention toward God. Not as maybe we think God is or have always thought God is, but how God is revealed in Jesus. We turn our attention towards God as God is revealed in Jesus to be in the one who has come, Christ our Lord. And traditionally, the first gospel reading in the season of Epiphany is always the baptism of the Lord. And so I'm going to invite us to sit with what we've read this morning out of the gospel of Mark in five movements. And the first movement is this, John the Baptist Now, John the Baptist, if you read a few verses earlier in this chapter of Mark's gospel, is an incredibly eccentric figure. He wears camel clothes. He's locust and honey. He lives on the margins of his world. He's far away from the center of power, and he's a little bit of a wily guy. Like one of those that if you saw John the Baptist this morning walking down the street, you probably would cross to the other side if the traffic on Monticello would allow you to. Or if you walked in and you were looking for a place to sit and John the Baptist was sitting in your normal spot, you would go, okay, I guess we're trying a new seat today. He's a wily figure, incredibly eclectic, eccentric, over the top. And you want to know how Jesus describes him. John the Baptist is the cousin of Christ. And here's how Jesus describes him. Jesus describes him as the greatest and most important person who has ever lived. In Luke's gospel, when John the Baptist first meets Jesus, he's in his mother's womb, Elizabeth, who is Mary's cousin. And John's response to meeting Jesus for the very first time in the womb, Luke tells us, he is filled with the Holy Spirit and leaps for joy. 
John is intended to be a figure that is the fulfillment of all of Israel's prophetic tradition. In John, there is a miraculous birth. Elizabeth will give birth to him. She is very full of years, past when most people would be able to have children. There's a miraculous birth. He has followers, and he spends his entire life doing what we read about him doing today, pointing to the one who is coming, that in his famous words, is greater than I, the one of whom he must increase, and as John will say, I must decrease. He is the fulfillment. He is the last of the Israel prophets. And John is standing in the midst and on the margins because he is declaring God's coming judgment. In other gospels, we are told that he says, repent for one is coming. The Pharisees and the teachers come out to visit him and he goes, who warned you, you brood of vipers of the wrath and of the judgment that is to come? And here's the thing about John. Here's why I know you probably wouldn't want to sit next to him in church. John is not careful about what he says. John is not careful in any way about declaring God's judgment. In fact, his public denunciation of Herod is ultimately what will lead to his death. And so what is it that makes John so special? I would argue it is this, is that John, unlike any other figure, has utterly given over his life to the witness of Jesus. He has utterly given over his life to pointing as a witness to who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. And here's what I want you to know this morning, that for those of us who follow Jesus, who have been baptized In the same waters as we'll see that Christ has been baptized in, the Spirit has claimed us as witnesses to follow in the path of John in pointing, maybe not quite as eccentric or as eclectic. I'm not, you know, suggesting like, hey, after the service, there's going to be coffee and we're all going to make cardboard signs that say, repent, the, the end is near. But in our own ways, in our own vocations, in our own callings to point to the one who is, the one who was, and the one who will always be. And what John is pointing to is the revelation of who God is, which brings us to the second movement. Jesus comes from Nazareth to the Jordan. He comes from Nazareth Nazareth in Galilee to the Jordan where John is baptizing, and it seems like just a little, uh, maybe a little description within the narrative, but I think there's something more if we're willing to sit with it The journey from Galilee and Nazareth to the Jordan River would have taken at best three to four days and at most a week. This was not a long, or this was a long journey. This was not a short little hop and a skip. And what can be viewed as is just a very small detail, I think is intended to remind us, and I think this is a good reminder as we enter into this new year as far as the Gregorian calendar is concerned, that friends, there is no length that Christ will not go to reach everyone he intends to reach. I think this is what Paul means when he says that he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but rather threw it aside and came incarnate to be near us. 
That's what Paul means when he prays that the church would understand the height and the breadth and the depth of God's love for us, that there is no corner, that there is no place, either in the world or even inside of us, that Christ will not go to reach all that he intends to reach. There is no distance too far. There is no corner too dark for Christ not to go. Wherever we wander, wherever you wandered this past year, and I'm not talking about a physical pilgrimage. Maybe it's an emotional wandering, a relational wandering. Maybe it's a wandering into a substance a wandering into a way of numbing. Wherever you wander, you never wander so far that Christ cannot reach or is unwilling to go to, to reach what he intends to reach, which, beloved, is you. Jesus goes to the River Jordan, and he doesn't just stand on the bank. The Gospels tell us he goes down into the waters. Which brings us to this third movement, the waters. One of my favorite memories, and it's sort of become a Spiller family tradition every summer when we go to the beach to retell this story. Because it's, I think, at least for me, it's one of my favorites. I don't know if it's one of yours. You don't know what story I'm going to tell. You're like, I'm not going to claim. I'm talking to my wife right now. She's like, I don't know what story you're going to tell, so I'm not going to say it's my favorite. That's fair. Wisdom. Um, so when our oldest was very young, uh, we lived in a city that had this big park in the middle of it with all these different kind of, they called them lakes, but they were really glorified ponds. And so we would walk from our house down to this park in the middle of downtown, and we'd walk around. And uh, our oldest would always stop and go, look at the puddle. And sometimes she was talking about the actual puddle on the sidewalk we were walking on, but most often she was talking about the ponds, and she would go, look at those puddles. And so the first time we ever take her to the beach, this is like a core parenting memory for mine, she kind of waddles out, right? She's got her, you know, water diaper on and bathing suit, and she just stops. She's got a little spout on top of her head, and she goes, whoa. She got like the, the floaties. We call them floaties, and you're just looking like, you know, the, everyone looks like the Michelin man, like walking out like that. And she just goes, whoa, that's a big puddle. <laughs> and it's just the most precious, one of my absolute favorite memories of her. I bring up that story because no one in the first century, in Jesus' day or in the days preceding him, would have looked at water in that way. There was no affection. There was no, gosh, I really could use a holiday down by the water. In the first century, the water represented chaos. It represented darkness. It represented death. And it represented danger. There's this beautiful Orthodox icon. If I had thought about it enough ahead of time, I would have had it printed for you, but I didn't. So you just have to take my word on it, and if you'd like to see it, I'm happy to send it to you. But there's an Orthodox icon that is an icon of Jesus' baptism, and what's interesting is that the way the iconist wrote the icon is that there are multiple different types of water making up this river that Jesus is going to be baptized in, and specifically three, and the artist is taking from uh, some of the Old Testament stories to bring these kinds of water into the river. The first are the waters of pre-creation. We're told in Genesis that are the primal waters of darkness and chaos over which the spirit hovers. There's the waters of the flood and Noah where God's judgment comes and sweeps darkness away from the world. And then there's the waters of the exodus 
where God carries Pharaoh and his armies into judgment. And the iconist, and I think it's right, into these waters Jesus goes down into, into the waters of chaos, into the waters of the flood, into the waters of the exodus. But notice how he goes down. He does not go through. In none of the gospel readings do we read that Jesus enters into the water and the waters part. He does not pass through. He goes down. He is baptized. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? The one without sin. He goes down, friends. And keep this in mind. So, You have the waters of pre-creation, chaos. You have the waters of the flood. You have the waters of the exodus. Keep that all in mind as Jesus enters into the water because what Jesus does is he goes down into the chaos to claim it for God. He goes down into the waters of the flood with those who do not believe. He goes down with Pharaoh in his army. He goes down with the wicked. He goes down with you and with me. God comes seeking us when we are not seeking him. That's what it meant for Jesus as he slowly entered into those waters to be baptized by his cousin. It shows us, it reveals to us, it is an epiphany, it is a theophany, it is a revelation of a God who seeks us continually, even when we do not seek God, of a God who does not know how to be absent, not just from those who love him, but from all people. Or as Cyprian, an early church father says, the Lord incarnate did not shrink from identifying himself with sinners who were in need of rescue. Thanks be to God that he is not standing on the shore watching us be swept away, but enters in with Pharaoh, with the armies, with us. Christ goes down, but Christ does not stay down. And this brings us to the fourth movement. The spirit descends like a dove. Christ goes down into the waters, but does not remain there. Christ is the one who descends and the one who ascends. But what is it in this moment that he ascends to? Mark tells us that the Holy Spirit settles on him like a dove. Now, again, the waters of the flood. If you remember, Noah is said to have sent out a number of birds, and one of those birds was a dove. And so the dove is sent out, but the dove does not come back. And what does that mean if the dove doesn't come back? What it means when Noah sends out the dove that the dove does not return, what it means is that new creation is waiting that there is dry land for the people to once again place their feet on. So what does it mean for a dove, the Holy Spirit, to land like a dove? It means that Christ enters in with us and arises in the inauguration of new creation. That new creation has come on the other side of judgment. That we won't need to wander for 40 years to find it, that it can be found in Christ and with Christ. 
the spirit rests on him because the kingdom is here. The kingdom is available. And contrast this with what the spirit does in the opening chapters of Genesis, where we're told it broods over the chaos. It hovers over the chaos, but here in this moment, it is not hovering, it is settled. Hippolytus, what a name, was a Palestinian church father around 230 AD. He says this, in the opening of heaven, a reconciliation is taking place. And he's commenting on this passage. In the opening of heaven, a reconciliation is taking place between creator and creation through the redeemer by the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Christ is entering into the chaos, entering into the death, and in that entering, he is defeating death. In that entering, he is destroying the evil that destroys and attempts to reclaim us. Christ is entering into our original woundedness. And in his entering, his wounds will become our womb of new life. Life with and in the divine trinity. The early church repeatedly tells us that Christ does not go into the waters for himself. He goes into the waters for us, for me, and for you. Which brings us to our last movement. The fifth movement is Christ goes out as the beloved. Mark tells us that a voice came from heaven. You are my son, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. He enters into these waters before he has accomplished anything. I've said this before. If you and I were writing this story in an American Western context, this would come at the end. Jesus comes in, Father, look at all of my miracles, healings, the demons I've cast out. Here are my sermon transcripts. What do you think? Well done, good and faithful servant, my beloved. But this comes at the beginning. He goes into these waters. He hears these words. And what is happening in that moment, like the water he turns into wine, the waters are changed for us that when you and I enter in as well, what has happened to Jesus, what is true of Jesus can also be true of us. And here's where I want to return to the beginning and this idea of contemplation. As I mentioned, the invitation this season is of turning our attention toward God, to having regular spaces and regular ways in which we turn away from the world and turn toward God. Now, this is not about avoiding seeing the world as the world is. A lot of times it can be used for that. This is not about ignoring the suffering of the world, our own pain, the places and the parts of the world where God is still at work redeeming and restoring. This is not about avoiding that pain. If anything, you and I, without ever turning to God, do our best to turn away from those things, whether it's through food, alcohol, drugs, pornography, entertainment, whatever, it, whatever our vice of choice is, and maybe it's just like the golden corral of vices. Few of you got it. That's okay. You'll, the rest of you get on your way home. But 
regardless of what that is, is an invitation to not numb away, to take moments to turn away from the world, to turn away from God, not that we would ignore the world, but that we might become the kind of people who see it rightly. We turn away from the world and toward God that we might see the world rightly, that we might see the world as God sees it, that we might see ourselves and our neighbor as God sees it. And how does God see it? God sees it, that all that is in it, that there is nothing God has not claimed, and there is nowhere that Christ will not go. Not in the world and not in us. As a friend of mine describes it, contemplation is not intentional living, though it is intentional, it is attentional living. Attending to God in all things at all times and to all things at all times in God. Attending to God in all things at all times, to all things at all times in God. In this season of Epiphany, May we just, maybe even a little bit more than we are now, by Holy Spirit's help, become the kind of people attending to God, that we might see the world rightly, that we, may, that we might see ourselves and our neighbors rightly. I actually can't think of a more important invitation as we enter into another election year. That those who we so easily flatten and demonize to our own benefit, that if you were to switch to the other side, you would just demonize a whole new group of people because it's easier to deal with nuance and complicatedness that way. Oh, if there was ever a moment for us to increasingly become the kind of people that see the world as God sees it, that nothing is beyond God's reach and there is nowhere Christ will not go. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, for just a moment, I want to invite us into a space of silence. To just pay attention with ourselves and our bodies and the Holy Spirit. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.